Hey, have you ever wanted to create your own podcast and share your own light bulb moments with the world? If so, now is the perfect time to do so because audio is the future of the internet and Anchor is a perfect place to do it. So Anchor is a podcasting platform you can find at anchor.fm and it's what we use to create the Lightbulb Moment podcast. So Anchor is amazing because first of all, it's completely free to use. Yep, completely free. And there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. So I've used Anchor to record with other guests on a mobile app, and you can also edit on your computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you across so many platforms. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the other major podcast streaming sites. So you don't have to set up individual accounts and try to distribute to all of those places. And you can also make money from your podcast with no minimum subscribers needed. And it's basically everything you need to record, edit, and publish your podcast in one place all for free. So I highly encourage you to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Good luck. Hi there. Welcome to IDA, where we address how you can ideate, decide, act on the business topics we talk about in each episode and apply them to your own startup. My name is Ganika Pinna. And I'm Varika Pinnam. We're the founders of IDA, Ideate, Decide, Act. At IDA, we connect female founders to investors, one-on-one mentoring, and resources to help grow their business. In today's episode, we have Maura Schreier Fleming, who's a best-selling author and has founded her own company, Best at Selling, as well as has 20 years of sales experience in a Fortune 500 company. Hi, Maura. Welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Varika and Ganika. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. And, you know, I have a brief intro there, but we'd love to learn more about your career journey and how you ended up using your sales expertise to write those books and start your own company. Well, if you are a person listening to this podcast who says, I must have a career plan to get to where I'm going to be, do not listen to the rest of my podcast. <laughs> I really did not have a plan. And if I you know, there's a saying, and I think it's Kierkegaard said this, life makes perfect sense looking backwards, but unfortunately must be lived going forwards. My life in hindsight makes perfect sense. But if you could have predicted it, you never would have been able to predict it. And to, to just give you a, a short a sentence, a couple of sentences about how I got to selling oil as an engineer, which led me to starting my sales training and consulting company, I went to graduate school during the day. I studied engineering. And then at night, I got my very first car in graduate school. And I remember looking under the hood thinking it was magic. So I decided I needed to learn auto mechanics. So I went to Georgia Tech during the day and mechanics school at night, DeKalb Tech. And I loved it. And that is when I realized I always knew I loved sales. I loved the challenge of engaging another person in the best reasons why they should buy something. And that's exactly how I see sales. It's just a wonderfully helpful profession. So I knew I wanted sales, but after working in the, in retail, I really wasn't cut out for it. And so the mechanical components and the challenge of that was exciting to me. So I decided when I finished graduate school, my company, my finalists, 
had to be somebody that could offer me mechanical components. And that's when I went into the oil business because I would be recommending industrial lubricants for hydraulics and gears and bearings. So I was there. I was in the industry, you know, over 20 years, loved it. I worked with some of the neatest people. They were just so nice to me, so smart. I learned every day. I learned something new. And that's what I needed in a job. So, at, at, and in the 90s, I decided I had as much fun as I could stand and I left. I said, I wanted to work with salespeople, but I want to teach it to them the way I learned myself and what I found to be effective. So, I started thinking about what was my process. And I guess really probably the engineering component in me saying, everything's a process, sales is a process. And I actually had, when I started Best at Selling in the late 90s, a discussion with a vice president of sales. And he said to me, and I, I disagreed with him, but I came around to later agree with him. He said, Maura, if you have a good process, I could train a monkey to sell. And I said, no, 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 it's the it's a personal component. Da, da, da. He goes, I can train for that too. And you know what? He's right. If you have a great sales process and you do that process well, you will sell. So that's kind of a cool story of how I got into into my consulting company from sales. Yeah, that's awesome. And you found a company that like meshes your love for sales and like the auto mechanics and stuff like that. And like you were saying, sales is definitely a challenge. Um, but like, like that's really curious that you said there's like a process that, you know, you could train a monkey to sell. Like, can you briefly go over that process? Really? Like, what are the key characteristics, I guess, that makes a great, you know, person like a salesman and you know, how can people develop those characteristics? Okay, so it's really two questions. First, the process, then we'll talk skills. Mm -hmm. The process, you know, and I wrote a column about this. Sales starts way before you sit in the chair or get on the phone speaking to a customer. I mean, nowadays, a lot of selling is done Zoom and remotely, but it starts way before that engagement with, with a prospect. You've got to know your products inside and out. And that's preparation. You've got to know how to read your customer. And that, I call it speed reading people. That is the foundation for being able to influence and persuade. You can listen to somebody's voice. You can watch their face. You can see how they speak or not with their hands. And all of those clues are useful to figure out how you should be selling to that customer, how you should be persuading that customer. So I call speed reading people. That's the first step in the process. You've got to be able to read your customer. So, and actually the first step is know your products. Secondly is to, to, to know how. Then you've got to figure out the next step, which is how do I get either in front of the customer, either to get them to answer the phone or to get the meeting. So that means you have got to be able to say what's in it for the customer in an introduction. So how do you introduce yourself on the telephone, when you're obviously, in my opinion, going to get voicemail more often than not, especially if they don't know you or your company. So you've got to be able to say something that is compelling, like, why are you credible? What have you done for other people that is likely to, to be of interest to that particular prospect? So once you have your introduction and you can get the meeting, then you've got to be able to prepare for the meeting and be able to run an effective meeting that meets your objectives. And I've been on too many sales calls with salespeople, salespeople that after the sales call, they go, 
that was a great meeting. And my definition of a successful sales call or meeting or telephone call is that you accomplished your objective, which means you set the objective before the meeting. And that objective must move the sales process forward. So in other words, you leave the sales call, you leave the telephone call with more than you had than before you started the meeting or the telephone call. And then you present what you have to offer, but that's the questioning strategy. And you can only present once you know what to present. And the questioning strategy is the step in the process where you uncover why the customer wants or needs what you have to offer and that it's important to him and he can act on it now. And then once you have all that information, then you can present, which is the next step. And in the presentation stage, you've got to make sure that the customer is buying into everything you thought you had confirmed before. Because at the end of that presentation, you're going to say, okay, we're all in agreement here. You want what I have to sell. Let's make it happen. Here's the contract. And then the next step is after the sales service. Because too many salespeople think that the sale is over once the customer says, I'm going to buy. And I say that's when the selling really begins. Because if you think your competition is sleeping by the side uh, of anywhere, waiting for you to just you know, go on your merry way and keeping that business, you're always vulnerable to competition unless you do the things after the sale that keep you strong and top of mind at the customer, like having multiple layers of contacts, being clear about customer expectations, setting customer expectations, things like that. And most important, which a lot of salespeople don't do, documenting your value. And that's a very important component. So do you want to talk about the skills too now, or do you want to have any questions on that process stuff? <laughs> uh, so actually, we have so many questions on that because that's a lot of useful information. I think one of the things that I actually wanted to ask is um, you were talking about having an objective to, ha um, to make a successful sales call. Yes. Um, say you haven't met that objective. Usually for a lot of people, that objective is to you know, make a sale or like get that deal, get, it, get to the next step of the process. But say it hasn't gone as expected, you know, things happen and, you know, you make that connection. Um, and in the end, you said, you know, walk out with more than how you started. So how do you turn it around and wrap it up in an effective way if it does go one of those ways? This is a great question. And I will just point, by the way, did you notice how I pointed out to you after the last part of the, the our interview that I asked, did you have any more questions? Asking questions is the best strategy to be a more effective salesperson because you're confirming what you know about the customer. But with that said, let me talk about meeting objectives because this is a very, very important part of selling. Why? Because selling is so challenging and I don't want any of the salespeople that I work with to get demoralized. Even though you're part of a sales team, typically selling is by yourself and you've got to stay motivated. So here's how you set an effective sales call strategy. It's not only a maximum objective, but it is a minimum objective. And by minimum objective, it's something that you can control. So let's say the maximum objective is, like you just said, I want to get the sale. Well, if you don't get the sale, you've just failed. That did not meet your objective. However, before you go into that sales call, you're also going to set a minimum objective. And this is the definition of that. You can control it. 
So here's an example of a minimum objective. I am going to ask for a customer referral, or I'm going to ask for an introduction to another person at that particular company. Like, and, and I alluded to that earlier. I like to know three layers of an organization and three people across, because if somebody gets promoted or leaves, I am more vulnerable. Competition will know that, and then they'll come in and try to steal my business. So if I know three across, up, middle, you know, my layer of contact, one person above in the hierarchy of the organization and one person below, not only protects you, you hear a lot of gossip and that is good. So <laughs> my, my, and I, I can tell you so many times of my customers saying to me, hey, Maura, you know who was in the other day? So-and-so you know, from a comp- competitor. But don't you worry. I told my boss we don't like him and we don't like his products. This is great information to know. So I know that the word is getting out about my being a more desired supplier. But you see, when I say my minimum objective is to ask for a piece of information or simply ask a question so I can confirm. So I would like to know my minimum objective is to learn that maybe all orders have been processed uh, smoothly. All deliveries have been on time. Something that I can control. I can control whether I ask that question or not. And that's a minimum objective. So the answer to your question is, did you meet the objective? Well, if you didn't meet the maximum, you did meet the minimum. That makes a successful sales call. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so <laughs> I see what you're saying there, like about something you can control and like, so you don't feel distracted and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And like, you can turn it around so you don't, because that's really hard. Like, you know, they always talk about like not taking rejections personally in sales. Like it's not about you as like a salesperson. Right. Yeah. So it's super important that you said that. And um, because the process that you outlined earlier was like, so, you know, good. I actually had another question about that. Yeah. You talked about speed reading, right? Which is really fascinating. Um, Yeah. And I was wondering if you had any like archetypes or like quick tips about how you read people, like when you see a certain signal, like what does that mean to you? And like something that you can share with the audience. Okay. There are two dimensions of behavior forcefulness, which is known as assertiveness, and responsiveness, which is, which is whether people show or hide their feelings. And it's a four-quadrant model. So you're either more assertive, more forceful, or less forceful. You are either more responsive or less responsive. Now, in the literature, they refer to it as more responsive, which are the people that show their feelings, and more controlled, which are the people that hide their feelings. Now, I start listening for these clues on the telephone. Forceful people tend to be very decisive. They make quick decisions, that's decisive. And they, and and on the other hand, less assertive people are less decisive and they, I do not like them as much because it takes longer for them to make buying decisions. So here's a quick one that I'm listening to. Fast talking people, I would be considered a fast talking person versus a slower talking person, that is a clue. And just remember, we're comfortable with people who we perceive to be like ourselves. Both of you are fast talkers. So if I were to be interviewed like that, you would probably pull your hair out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So fast talkers are decisive. Slower talkers are less decisive. 
Louder talkers, like my voice, is a, that's a, a decisive person, assertive. A softer talking person is less assertive. And so if I'm talking to someone like this, I'm crying inside because it's going to be a long sales cycle. And remember, we're comfortable with people who we perceive to like our, to be like ourselves. So I'm loud and fast and they're soft and slow. It is the opposite of me on two things. And I'm just, it's hard. We are all hardwired a certain way. And the predictor of success in sales is this flexibility component, the ability to do different things at different times. Now I can slow it down and I can soften it up if I have to, but it's hard and I don't choose to. So, you know, I, I would not, I would not like to have to do it all the time, but I have to sometimes because customers are different than me. Now on the responsive dimension, whether people are showing their feelings or hiding their feelings, you listen to their voice. Now, and people that are listening to the podcast now, they can hear my voice. I have a, a multi-tonal voice. It's this is an example of a monotone voice. This is somebody that sounds like this all the time. They tend to have one tone and it's just all the way like that. Well, I have more varied tones. Both of you have more varied tones. So when you listen when you listen to a monotone voice, know that is a very controlled person. When you listen to people like us, that's responsive. Now, people who are responsive are what's called people people <laughs> and they buy based on opinions. People, an opinion comes from a person. People that are more monotone buy based on fact. So if you listen to somebody's voice and if someone is talking to you like this and you hear like a lot of engineers or a lot of CPAs that they tend to be more monotone and think about how they work. They work with a lot of data and facts and information. So if I were to tell a, a classic engineer, you're going to love this. A, they're going to think I'm nuts because... <laughs> What does that have to do with my ability to make a decision? Now, if I were to say to an engineer, you will be able to increase your productivity 20% because that's the research that we, that's the results that we were able to produce from another customer, I'm going to have his ears perk up. So notice, I can't even see you guys, but I can get enough clues about your pace, your voice pace, your voice volume, and your voice tone to make some decisions about how I'm going to modify my behavior. And why is this so important is because in order to influence and persuade, we have to build this rapport. And rapport is the ability to relate to a person in a way that you create trust and understanding. Sales is all about this transfer of trust. And if I am able to build rapport quickly, which is what you do when you read people, my customer is more willing to, to trust me. They listen more effectively. And by the way, listening is one of the most important skills of a sales professional. And I put this skill as part of listening. You got to be able to listen to your customer. Now, there's another thing that I'll say that because you watch people face to face, you can't see me. But if you watched me, if you could, you would see my hands flipping around as I'm talking. Now, it's kind of funny because my husband is a statistician, as you could imagine, very controlled. And he one time when I was on an interview on a telephone interview, and he saw me with my hands. And he after he said to me, he goes, did you know your hands were moving? Why were your hands moving? I go, that is how I talk. And I will tell you, when I'm talking in a face-to-face -face meeting with a controlled person, I do talk with my hands, but I put them low down below the table, below the desk, so the customer can't see them. Because if, 
if I talk to a controlled person with my hands flipping around, they it's just too distracting. And they will look at my, my hands all the time. And then the other thing to look at face to face. So control people do not use their hands. Their hands will be very calm on their desk or in their lap. It's, it's, it's amazing to me, but that's how they're wired. My hands are flipping all over the place. Control response people are flipping all over the place. Facial expressions. There are 43 muscles in your face and control people use them. They use, I probably use all 43, but control people, their faces don't move. Only their lips, because that's how the words come out, but their faces are very, very, with, very controlled. Their muscles are not moving at all. So those are the clues to watch for when you're reading people. Wow, that's amazing. I feel like I was just in a psych class <laughs> in a really good way. And it is psych. It's all the brain controls everything. It's true. Um, I was going to, I was trying to think of this book that I read on this, but I'll come back to that later. It's on the tip of my tongue. But one of the things that you were talking about is like uh, the styles of persuasion through all of this, right? Because at the end of the day, why you're trying to read people, their voice and all of that is because you're trying to convey your own point across, whatever that might be. And to a lot of listener, uh, listeners, my bad, um, I just want to say that like when in sales, right, everything is a sale in business, I suppose, uh, even when you're talking to your uh, you know, competitor or what, whoever, you're trying to convey something, you're trying to persuade something, or even when you're talking to your employer or a potential employer, what is the best persuasion tactic for um, some of these scenarios? I mean, how do you initially make that connection for one of these archetypes? It's strong. First of all, selling is helping someone to make a great buying decision, whatever that may be. So, and I use the word buying mm-hmm. in you know con- in a loose context. But so the first strategy is to ask yourself, how does that person want to buy? And, you know, the, the subtlety is just like what I said. If I know I'm selling to someone who's very controlled, I better be prepared with some data. And I better have data from a credible source. It can't be some John, John Joe Doe down the street says, you know, I was talking to Joe Doe and he, or John Doe, and he says that he loves this. You know, no, he says he was able to improve performance. That's not, that's just no number in there. I haven't quantified anything. And if you get something in writing, that is the ultimate fact-based uh, proof because people see something that it's writing as valid and, and true. So if you can get another customer to tell you his results, but you know, and then this is kind of like an offshoot, but I always write my own testimonial letters by interviewing my customers and offering to write those testimonial letters because I know what needs to go in them. And so I will ask the questions so that my customer answers them. And then I use their answers in the letter that I've written. And then I send it to them and they put it on their letterhead and they send it back to me. And those are the letters that I use. And they are free of typographical errors, grammatical errors, and they have facts and they have opinions. And they're written by various levels of authority, well, you know, whether it's vice presidents, president, CEO or lower, whatever. So I've got various types of proof that I can use in different situations. So the first step is to know how your customer buys and then be prepared to support that strategy. 
That's great. And you touched on something really important there about writing your own testimonial letters. So, uh, which prompts me to ask, one, how do you incentivize people to, you know, be on an interview with you for just giving their review? And then what goes in that letter? Because you said there's some very specific things that you like to include when you write it yourself. Well, here's what I do. If I have a customer and I built this into my sales process, remember I said after the sale, there's, there's, a, there's a step. Well, this is one of the steps. It's you, at, at whatever period of time your customer has to experience the value of your product, whatever that may be. And so you then call, I do this on the telephone. I do not do this face-to-face. Why? Because I'm typically typing as they're talking, because I want to, ca- and I'm very a very quick typist, I want to capture their exact words, because those are the words I'm going to use in the letter that I ultimately write. So I call my customer up after that period, that interval, where they're able to experience the value of my product. And I say to my customer, I'm calling because after the sale, I find it very important. It's part of my process. I want to be able to learn from my customer how they're using my product. And I want to hear from you And now I go back to this controlled or responsive. It's controlled. I want to hear how my product has impacted your bottom line. That's a thing. If it's a responsive person, I want to hear how my product has impacted your team or your people or your staff. That's a people thing. So that's the question I open up with. And then I listen and I'm typing furiously. And then since I know what I'm trying to get to, I'm looking to quantify stuff. Were, were, were you able to reduce, like in the oil business, were you able to reduce your downtime in the sales training? Were you able to shorten your sales cycle? Were you able to in- improve your productivity? Tell me, how were you able to improve your productivity? What were the results you saw? And I'm typing, you see? So then at the end of, when I know I have enough information, now my first paragraph in that letter is going to be what their situation was before they used my product. For my sales team, they were unproductive. They weren't meeting their sales goals for the last three years. I was in jeopardy of losing my job. Whoa, that's pretty significant. Second paragraph, what did she do? We worked together with more sales training program. We were able to shorten our sales cycle by three months. We were able to increase profits by X and blah, blah, blah. The third paragraph, now this is one that I use that's a strategic one. I say who I am recommended to. And this is a question that I'll ask the prospect. So if I know my market, are VPs of sales or small businesses or mid-sized businesses, I would say to the customer, would you recommend my work to other small businesses or mid-sized businesses or VPs of sales, whatever that may be? And he goes, oh yeah. So then I would say, I recommend Moore's work to other vice presidents of sales who want to improve their sales results. And that's my last paragraph. So that again, that's Somebody else saying something about me, that's an opinion. I said in the second paragraph, the results, that's fact. This letter is now able to be used for responsive and controlled people. And um, by the way, before I end the the telephone call with with my customer, I say, oh, by the way, if I take what you've told me and put it in a letter and send it to you, would you feel, you know, feel free to make any changes that you'd like? Would you just send it to me back? In all my years of doing this, I... I've gotten 100% letters back. Now, I might have had to bug a few people (laughs) like once a month. I don't want to be a pest, but I do want my letter. And I have gotten 100% back. And in my years of doing this, I can tell you, I I can think of one off the top of my head that changed the letter and made it even better. 
And the rest basically came back just exactly what I sent. And they just flipped it, cut and paste, put it, you know, you got to make it easy for your customer to help you. And that's what I did. One time, one time, I broke my rule. And I'll, I'll never forget this one because it was a, a, a vice president of marketing. And you could tell by the way she dressed, she was not a controlled person. Well, controlled people have attention to detail. This, this type of assertive response of people are not into detail. And I was said it, I, you know, I'd like to, exactly what I said before about getting your testimonial letter. And she said, oh, I know exactly what you want. I'll write it. Well, I couldn't say to her, I don't think so. That isn't going to work. But I said, what the heck? Well, let's see what happens. <laughs> well, I got back a letter. I am not exaggerating. There were four exclamation points in the letter. Now, if somebody shows you a business to business letter with four exclamation points in it, you're going to think they're off their medication. So it's just too many. And there was a grammatical error in there. And I actually, I had a program that I put together called how to write a testimonial letter. And her letter was not for naught because I used that as an example of this is what a bad letter looks like. Oh no. (laughs) I couldn't use it. It was, it was just, it was too over the top. You, you cannot be perceived as just unbelievably fabulous. You've got to be believably fabulous. And by the way, since people scan letters, I, I put three paragraphs. You can very clearly see each paragraph and the results are in bold and anything that's really super positive in bold. So they scan and see the good stuff. And, and I have to tell you, it's really interesting when you give these letters to your customers, like the prospects that you're wanting to sell. Oh, you know, I've told you that we can increase your sales productivity 20%. You, would you like to see what some other of my customers have experienced? They all go, yeah, because it's people are curious and they want to read. It's almost like gossip. They want, oh, I want to hear what inquiring minds want to know. And they'll read them and they, they will read those letters. So that they're very effective. That's awesome. And that you had a hundred percent return rate. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Not for lack of trying, but most, I mean, 80, 90%, it's easier. You know, they, people just want to help you and it's an easy process. That one was just busy, and I would I would say, "Are you still busy?" And and of course, I don't ask the question in those situations. I don't say, "Well, can you get it back to me by next week?" I will ask. It was a her. I go, "When do you think you could get it back?" And I don't want to rush you, but when do you think you can get it back? And by the way, when you're pushing, talk a little softer. Remember what I talked about assertiveness. It's less pushing. So I would say, "Oh, I understand. I know you're busy. So when do you think you could get it back to me?" Like that. That's clever. I like that. (laughs) Um, Very persuasive. Yeah. And you know what you said about like on the customer testimonial, like if it's some, if it's a controlled person, you'll ask like, oh, what was your bottom line? And then if it's like a responsive person, you'll ask, how did that impact your team? I was smiling because that like that question really speaks to me. And then I think the more data oriented question really speaks to Ganika, right? So Uh, (laughs) you are the perfect team because I maintain all responses, all of one type, you know, it's four quadrants. The best teams have all four quadrants and they respect each other's strengths and don't trample on the weaknesses. I love teams that are balanced like that, that really respect each other. It's re- it's just really lovely to watch because they're so productive. 
Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah, we're over here just laughing because she's looking at me. (laughs) (laughs) And okay, I know this is like supposed to be like about sales and stuff, but we were getting into like personalities, which I find so fascinating because, you know, it really does. I think everything does go back to like, you know, personalities and emotions and especially like, I I feel like business and everything else in life, to be honest. But you were saying something about um, assertive people being more responsive and controlling no, 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 people no, no. wouldn't do that no, no there was something you were saying about her letter that I kind of missed on that okay assertive and responsive are the two different dimensions so um tell me what it was specifically that I said assertive people wouldn't do what um oh about the exclamation points and stuff I think what we're wondering is are the two linked or are they two independent um, metrics that are independent of each other think of a x-axis and a y-axis the x-axis is assertiveness so left and right, more right, right is more assertive. The y-axis, up and down, more controlled is up top, more responsive is down below. Okay, I see. And you could be anywhere on that spectrum. Yes, right. And so you have upper right are very assertive and very controlled. Up left quadrant is less assertive and controlled. Lower right, more responsive, more assertive. That's us. And then lower left, less assertive more responsive. I think Mr. Rogers, you know, Oprah, right, upper right, President Trump, upper left would be um, Mr. Spock, you know, he's not real or green. Uh, Yeah, you you get in the no face sort of stuff. That's fascinating to me. (laughs) So everybody who's listening, they're trying to figure out where they fall under this. (laughs) They should. I had this question one time, you know, it's sales, but you, your, your most important sale is your family. And like I said, my husband is an opposite to me. We, I mean, we're, act, we're, we're, very, we're very opposite, but we're close enough on assertiveness that he's the most assertive of his less assertive style. And I'm still assertive, but I respect his stuff. And our daughter is the exact opposite of me. She was, as I joke, the doormat of the preschool. And I taught her assertiveness at three years old. And it was raising her voice louder to the bullies in her program. And she was able to say one day, I mean, we worked on what could she possibly say, which was kind of funny. My husband said, well, just punch him. And she goes, no, you're not allowed to do that. So uh, she she came up with something to say. And and she came home from preschool one day. She said, you know, Mom, I stood up for myself. And I said, fabulous. We're going to the the store and you're buying anything you want. And that's what we did. I wanted to remember. That's cute. <laughs> That's really cute. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it, I guess it applies to like almost anything. And, you know, I, one of the things that you were saying before is, I mean, like going back to like selling and stuff. Yeah. And I read on your website too, you were talking about selling more with your brain and less with your mouth. And I found that really nice because, you know, a lot of times in sales, it's all about, you know, bombarding the other person with information, whatever you're trying to sell. And even if you just said, sales in terms of family buying in terms of being very loose about what what it is that you're selling so how does that model apply I guess and I I really want to know because I feel like that's so important to sell more with your brain yes it's the more brain aspect is being thoughtful and you know it's not about making the only one right decision life is about taking risks and I'll tell you in sales 
Some are going to work. Some are not going to work. And get over it. I mean, and that, that's the type of person. More assertive people are risk takers. And that, that's why they make decisions faster, because they're willing to take the risk of making a bad decision. So, of course, when you're selling to a less assertive person, you better reduce their perception of risk or else you will be selling forever and ever and ever. And they will not be able to make that decision. But so the thoughtful aspect is what do I need for the sales call? What is my persuasion strategy? What do I need to do? What am I going to modify or how am I going to modify my behavior for short periods of time so I can be building trust quickly and you know, start my persuasion strategy? And what am I going to be on the lookout for? You know, if things are working well, you will get a gut feel and gut reactions are very powerful. It's not the only thing you use because those um, it, it is a source of information. You get far more information coming into your gut to make that decision. Think prehistoric man. He did not have time to whip out a spreadsheet to figure out if the tiger is going to eat him or he eats the tiger. He had a gut decision to run. But once you get these gut feelings, I, I think salespeople need to trust them. So that's one of the decisions. Are you, is the sales going, call going well? What's your gut telling you? If it's going well, keep doing what you're doing. If it's not, do something else. If you try to more responsive strategy, it's not working, well, then try a more controlled strategy or ask different questions. So that flexibility piece has to be part of sales because you got to understand sometimes it's going to work, sometimes it's not going to work. And if it's, and you know, think about this what happens if your normally responsive customer has come in after his child fell? And had to be rushed to the hospital and, you know, blah, 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 broke his arm. You think the guy is stressed or the gal is stressed? Of course. And then that's when everything goes out the window because styles of stress behave differently. So that's, again, another data point. I'm walking into the sales call with this decision and this strategy, but I didn't count on meeting with a stressed customer. And you know what? I get back to listening. People under stress are not good listeners. It's understandable. It's acceptable. I mean, it, we don't like it, but you've got to understand that that's the real world. So do you say to yourself, you know, Mr. Customer, I see this is not a good day for you. Did something happen or, or did something happen that I'm missing here? And they'll tell you, well, my, my kid was in the hospital last night. You say, well, you know what? Maybe it would be a better time for me to come back. That respect you show your customer is something that is wise because they're not listening to you. And you know what? You get some points for being kind, and there's nothing wrong with being kind. So that that's the sort of brain stuff you take into every sales call, and you use it, and you are flexible. And and by the way, I didn't mention this, but your most important customer is your manager. If you're in, if you're selling to your manager the way you want us to buy, you're missing the boat. You sell to your manager the way he or she wants to buy. If they're data-oriented, have data. If they're opinion-oriented, have opinions. If they want one sheet, don't send them a 10-page book. One sheet. That's great. Um, and when you were saying that, I really felt like you were reading me as well so, about like... <laughs> so that's awesome um especially like you know having that high eq like you're saying super important in sales yes. those are the sales people that do the best and it's that eq one of the components of eq is being flexible understanding who you're working with and adjusting 
definitely agree with that. And one of the things that, you know, going back to what you said about emotions and stuff, I hate to say this, you know, being a millennial, but, you know, the more attached we get to the, we get to devices, the more, you know, we're, we spend our time being on our devices, the less uh, we are, you know, interacting with people one-on-one, especially with, uh, you know, when COVID and stuff happened, we're more in tune with our devices. And, and it is affecting how, as we humans communicate and how we read people and, you know, how we talk and stuff. Um, in your professional opinion, do you think that selling in person is a thing of the past? And how did COVID change these uh, interactions and in sales general, processes. yeah, sales process? Well, COVID has changed everything. So, and especially face-to-face because, you know, think about it. If your customer, even if you wear a mask, so now with a mask, you can't see those facial muscles and you can't get those clues. You can't gauge emotions. So... I, if I were a customer, I don't think I'd want to see face-to-face in my office a possible virus carrier. So I'm going to limit as many of these as possible to what I can via computer, Zoom, teleconference, whatever. And so COVID's changed that. And, you know, y- yes, I believe face-to-face is the most source of information. However. The real world says in this time, we can't go with that. Second best is when you can see somebody on the computer screen. And obviously you can't see the whole thing because all you can see is you know, where, where they are. But um, that's we, got, we have to make do with that. And again, you can see the facial expressions. You can read their, their voice, their tone, look at them and make some decisions. So, so you have to do that. You have to adapt. And getting back to what you're talking about, the devices and less interactivity with people, I want you to think about this. If you're one of those people that uses devices all the time, you are losing the practice that you can get by interacting with people and reading and learning the clues. I always tell people when you learn about the clues, now go and practice. When you do the practice, you're going to be making decisions. Well, I see this. I'm going to do this and see if it works. If you're only on your device you're not practicing. You're you're not getting the recommended experience that you're going to need to be proficient at what I consider to be one of the most foundational skills of selling. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's something that I've been wanting to improve is like, you know, sales and stuff, because it's just like so daunting. Um, and I'm definitely going to go practice right after our podcast even. And even goal. My goal is to listen to three people and make decisions. So when, when people, again, when they set goals, quantify them, how many are you going to do by when, and then it may, it forces you to be more accountable. For sure. For sure. And then I feel like one of the best ways is even if you're not like selling, I guess, you know, tune in more to people and less to devices. And it's really hard. I understand that. <laughs> Even as, you know, as I was saying it, I'm like, it might be hard. But I guess, especially now, pandemic has taught us a lot about how important it is to stay connected with people and having those interactions and how much it affects us as people. Um, and the book I was mentioned before is How to Win Friends and Influence People oh, by yes. Dale Carnegie. Yeah. yeah. The classic. And, you know, he has what's some people say, well, it's all common sense. Well, common sense is not very common. <laughs> so, yeah, that guy really, it's a wonderful book. I would highly recommend it. 
Yeah, me too. I I have a hard copy of that book. <laughs> and you know what I find helpful too? When you have your library of wonderful books, periodically go back and reread. Just, you know, open the book, go to a certain section and reread it again. Uh, and, and, you know, I've been talking about influence a lot with, with this reading of people. Robert, Ch Dr. Robert Cialdini out of the University of Arizona wrote a book on influence. Every salesperson must read that book. It's the principles of persuasion and how to influence. And it's so important. Uh, that's super good. Um, I'll check that out because um, I've been looking for more like business books to read. I love and, it. Yeah. And that brings me to another question that I had, you know, throughout this conversation, I've been meaning to ask you because I know this is super important with persuasion. If someone's on the fence, how do you convince them like objection handling, right? Like that's a really important skill. What are your tips on that? Okay. Well, you know, in the quality process, we talk about the cost of failure. If you get pushback, and I'm going to distinguish between objections and true questions. Think about this. True questions, the less assertive person is going to ask a lot of questions because they want to reduce their perception of risk. If you get a true, do you get a lot of questions? Answer them all. And, and don't do like one salesman did. I was in the sales call. I nearly fell off my chair. He goes, oh, you don't need to know that. And that was the end of the sale. But it, lots of questions. That's a less assertive person looking for risk reduction. But a true objection is really the cause of failure. You see, during the sales process, you ask questions to uncover the need. And then you learn if the need is important and if they're going to act on it now. So if the customer has identified a need that is important that he must act on now, we're losing sales, our salespeople are unproductive, we've got to, it's costing us, how much is this costing you? It's costing us $20,000 a month. Is this an issue that you need to address now? Yes. Okay, Mr. Customer, if I can work with you on providing a solution that will increase your productivity, immediately, you have something to talk about. Would you be interested in that? Well, how can they push back if they've already said yes to that? Now, notice, I haven't presented anything. I've just confirmed that he thinks it's important. So I guess the answer to my question is this. You've got to confirm during your sales process that you're identifying something that's important, that they can act on it now, and they also have the resources to do something about it now. And if you find out those things early, then you keep talking. And I also like to uncover three things that are important before I present anything. That's awesome. I love how you break down sales into this very like systematic process, like we were talking about at the beginning to uh, even something like objection handling. Yeah, that's the engineer in me. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, as we're wrapping up, you know, I know, like I mentioned at the beginning, you wrote Monday morning sales tips, right? Uh-huh. And can you share a few of these quick tips with our listeners that we haven't touched on today, you know, that kind of come to mind as some of your top strategies? Well, I laugh at this one because, you, you know, they're talking about um, this so serious now and in this pandemic. But this is a quote from Jerry Seinfeld. I will never understand why they cook on TV. I can't smell it. I can't eat it. I can't taste it. The end of the show, they hold it up to the camera. Well, here it is. You can't have any. Thanks for watching. Goodbye. <laughs> and laughter is a good thing. It reduces stress. So for salespeople, Jerry has a point about making your selling easier. Can your customers experience your product before they buy? 
if they can, it will be much easier for them to buy from you because it reduces their risk of buying. And remember, we've been talking about that risk reduction. I'm in the business. I noticed that when someone has referred me to the conference or sales meeting planner, it's a much shorter sales cycle. Why? They know someone who has experienced the product, which is me. That's why I offer a demo video of an actual presentation so clients can see just what they're buying. What if you can't get customers to experience your product? Show them your testimonial letters. And we've talked about that. That's just like the cooking on TV. You might not be able to eat it, but when you see what they cook, the results, you just might want to cook it yourself and buy the cookbook. Here's a sales tip. A good way to gather testimonial letters is to ask clients how your work or product has impacted, impacted their company, department, or customer. Take notes when they answer. You can incorporate their comments in your selling. And that's we talked about that process earlier. So that's, that's, mm-hmm. just, that's one tip. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. We learned so much from today's call, and I think everyone is going to walk away with a lot of information. And that's the objective, because you know what the beauty of selling is? You will never know it all, and you can always improve. And I love that about selling. Yeah, growth mindset, super important to us here as well, Uh, always trying to learn things. Yeah, yeah, very important. I actually wanted to uh, say that you today spoke from such experience that, you know, we could really tell with some of the examples that you're giving us. I absolutely loved them. And I was sitting here, like, really got me thinking about some of the things. And I'm sure it did the audience, too. And one of the key takeaway points today, I guess, is, you know, really understanding and selling based with emotion and connecting with people. Mm-hmm. at least my takeaway mm-hmm. is um, I'm sure there's so many points that everybody had their own takeaway and mm-hmm. I want to thank you today for joining us Mora and if you enjoyed today's episode please be sure to subscribe and share with a fellow entrepreneur thank you for listening to Ida you can find us at thinkida.com until next time ideate decide act